Reverse, do you want to build a snowman? What musical would you like to see as a movie? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Ghost the Musical, but because it's probably going to happen, and I want credit for saying it out loud first. Hey, it's me, Dave with the Seven, and Book of Mormon already. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with Disney's Aida, which is probably a little too controversial to ever make into a movie. And they tried with Beyonce and uh, Christina Aguilera, and it didn't happen. And I actually just spoke to Tim Rice, and he told me it's not going to happen. But I'm still holding out. Name drop. I'm David Erling. We are doing this lighting round in honor of Jersey Boys, which Dave Gonzalez conveniently forgot to mention. Uh, and Ooh. I am going with Rent. Just kidding. Kill yourself. Uh, why not the Seussical? Who can afford to see musicals? I don't know what a musical is. Who cares? Let's go. <laughs> I just read the teleprompter, David. And I do a lot better than I somebody else we're going to talk about. another Rent movie. There's room in the world for two Rent movies. Is there? Like 20 years from now. I want the, I, the only Rent movie I want will star Ansel Elgort as Collins. I'm like, fuck you. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's It's a podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 27 for Tuesday, June 17th, 2014. Okay, so for the tidbit in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about Transformers The Premake. Which is something that Kevin B. Lee, who is the founding editor and chief video essayist for Fandor's Keyframe, uh, he is someone whose work you may have seen in the New York Times website. He is the creator of the Spielberg Face video and some other uh, very popular video essay type things, uh, has created an absolutely fascinating 25-minute video that he's been working on uh, over the course of the production of Michael Bay's Transformers Age of Extinction in theaters whenever, June 27th, sure. Next week sometime. Uh, and, um, and essentially this video, which uh, you on the webpage for our site, you'll be able to find a link to. It is now streaming for free unless Paramount has taken it down by the time you're listening to this. Which is pretty possible, YouTube. unfortunately. <laughs> it's very, very possible. Yeah. It's, uh, as I said, it's a 25-minute video that essentially chronicles the amateur worldwide chronicling of the production of the new Transformers film. It is called together from hundreds of hours of uh, sort of candid video from from passersby, from people who were stranded on their commutes home in traffic that was caused by the set of Transformers. The videos range anywhere from, uh, from downtown Detroit and Chicago and some you know, minor pickup shots of a power plant exploding or whatever in Seattle to Hong Kong uh, and denser areas, denser sort of, uh, I don't tropical is not the right word, forested or whatever areas of China. Um, and what you get is this sort of global mosaic of people so, so with with varying degrees of interest, there are also people are represented who are hardcore nerds who have flown to this area or have ascended to high, to high places um, in Detroit, for example, to show their fans that they are filming whatever you know, <laughs> monsters they're filming. I don't know if they've flown all the way to like, okay, Detroit. So they probably flown they're they're already they, in Detroit. Like a, <laughs> right. So, or two people who, there's this one phenomenal clip of uh, these two people in Hong Kong, and it's a guy and his mother, and he's explaining, <laughs> he and his mother are bickering about um, the, the use of 3D <laughs> yeah. in the movie, and Michael Bay is like, screaming his head off about something in the background. Uh, Michael Bay, you know, is just such a phenomenal character in this film piece. Um, and there are also news clippings, mostly from, uh, that, that, that range from local video news in the United States to, even more interestingly, uh, Chinese video from the sort of state news departments over there. Um, and what you get is a very dynamic and, and sort of compelling portrait of a number of different things. One is sort of the it sort of crystallizes the fervor over these movies where they're sort of digested before they're even uh, released. And you really get that sense more with the geek-heavy 
prism lens uh, than you do some of the more uh, uncalculated footage. But also, you get this sense of the disruption that these movies are causing a production of the size, how it affects sort of the landscape and everything around it, what it sort of sucks towards it in its its orbit and what it changes, why these movies go where they go. There's this great part where Michael Bay is talking about why this film is you know, partially or significantly set in China is not, he claims, to have anything to do with tapping it's into born the lucrative from the story. Right, it's all about the story. It has nothing to do with the increasingly lucrative Chinese box office. It's all about story. Or the no reality said, show that they spun off from right. the movie to find <laughs> actors for the film. Right. Oh, my God, um, that's right. Uh, yeah, Michael Bay is a, uh, in some respects at least in this video, a studio head's wet dream. And, and probably, an excellent liar. And an excellent liar. And others probably, or simply deluded himself. Um but it's also, in and of itself, a really compelling sort of creative work, uh, cutting these things together into a sort of inadvertent global narrative where – I mean there's, there's some moments in particular where Kevin will cut from uh, people filming an action sequence on a monorail to somebody on a rooftop filming – you know, filming I use uh, – with the old school definition. I mean, they're on their iPhones. They're all, all on their recording, right? Uh, that monorail from above, and you can sort of get a, a wider view. It's, it's very basic film grammar. You're getting a cut from one camera setup to another, uh, but they're from two people who have most likely never met one another and were unaware that they were filming. And so it's, it's a very, very interesting um, look at blockbuster filmmaking from another perspective and another element as we alluded to at the very top of the segment is that so much of this footage is being heavily par- uh, policed by Paramount that a lot of the clips that Kevin has used have already been taken offline in their original forms uh, there's even a part of the film where somebody boasts about it being there and then the next day or something like that the, the footage has been uh, they've received a cease and desist well that, that's what's so interesting to me making a down. movie of this magnitude in public I mean right. and, and part of the allure being like is is Transformers the property begetting the fandom, or does the fandom stir up? Like, or by seeing it in reality, the making of this movie, are we getting more excited for Transformers? And like, what parts of that does Paramount allow? Because you know, there there's one bit where someone's filming like some sort of alien pod that's been planted in the middle of Chicago for all to see, and they remove that. Even though it's right. in the middle it's of like a giant city, like, but then the guy in Detroit, the guy in Detroit is filming from a big building, and his videos seemingly never get taken down. As if maybe Paramount bought him out, and they want this kind of like ground swell, you know. This well, all- or Paramount is is very selectively choosing, you know, based on whatever they're they're they've deemed appropriate or deemed helpful for the movie what remains and what doesn't but you raise a really interesting point which is what is your jurisdiction on this i mean like how can you police what people are or are not allowed to record in public if they are you know they have a permit to shoot in this particular area does it necessarily stipulate that nobody in the surrounding area can access or record what they're doing i mean those are those are still it's still public property that they have the permission to borrow they march someone off the set at some point threatening he'll be arrested Right, and the guy is like, you know, the guy sounded like he was sort of hounding around the set, but at the same time, um, you know, what right and wrong, who's on whose side, it's hard to say. Uh, and at other times, the access is extraordinarily intimate. There is very clear, uh, lucid footage of, of Mark Wahlberg playing football with some members of the crew and berating one of them. And, um, and, you know, so sometimes it feels like the action of the production is a million miles away, and other times it's right in your face. Um, and it's, it feels to me watching this, you know, one of the, the many, many things that comes to mind when you watch it is, is that the studios are – and this is no fault of their own, really. It's just the nature of how quickly technology has progressed. They're woefully uh, – uh, you know, they're, they're, they're unprepared to handle this sort of thing. They have to they're, – they're scrambling to police their footage and figure out what is but then, like, what, what it is. And they've yet to get to the point where they're just like, this is what it is and we have to What's the policing efforts engineer. actually doing? Like I'm more interested in the obsession of people f- standing on the sidelines filming Transformers 4 being made. Filmmaking mm-hmm. can be so – mundane especially on this scale watching the same stunt just like a car drive on the exact precise track so that an explosion can go up behind it and all looks perfect in frame it's really boring 
Um, but I guess there's some sort of magic, like we're watching it happen, and or, or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm jaded or well, something. Like uh, it's like a. I mean, I feel like you guys are kind of talking about my job, and I think I at some point like chatted that to patches as i was watching and it's like this is sort of like how i experienced the making of transformers anyway and it's like these fans i mean the nice thing about this documentary is whenever it can take a non-fan perspective it will and you know have you know like a lady stuck in traffic or a conversation with a grandma because it has something interesting to say and kevin did a really good job making a narrative out of that but um, most of these videos and this coverage, like patches, you were saying, like maybe Paramount bought this guy out. They, nobody needs to pay money to these people. They're either at, after their own fame or they're because they're after like a part of either like what filmmaking is or what Transformers are and the amazing sort of hold of Transformers as a property. And what I think this pre-make accentuates even more is like this entire mythology was created years ago to sell to an entire generation of people and now we're selling to the other generation and to the entire world with like this core property that's basically hollow but it was created to do this and this is it at its ultimate extreme like this fiction has become a product even in the, the production of another chapter of it and at some point you have to wonder if maybe that is more important than whatever impact Although, Age of Extinction is going point, to have. Although, at a certain point, there's a woman who's filming while she's driving because she senses <laughs> that something is up and there's these giant tractor trailers and filming rigs. She doesn't actually know what's being shot, but she's filming on her iPhone while she's driving, narrating what she's seeing. <laughs> and, like, this is next-level weird to me because, what, she just wants the footage of something that might be happening? What is this obsession? This is... Very odd to me. Is that just right, the alert constant, of Hollywood? This constant need of chronicle. She doesn't even know it's Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, it's like this constant need to chronicle right. our immediate surroundings. It and could the be a police for... chase for all she knows. Right. right. It's like the hunt yeah, for spectacle. Yeah, but it spectacle. could also get sell- sold to the local news for however much money, which is why you would pay your That's phone hilarious. Phone. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if... Uh, it, or just upload it for her friends. Or that motivation. too. I think it's just... Yeah, it's, it's... But like, it could get a million hits on YouTube, and that is worth... As much. Well, for me, this it's is like a the gigantic topic. Guys, a radar we're right for, on the edge of. I'm not gonna let you close it out quite yet. What? Okay. It's like the uh, like a radar for spectacle, and just to go back to what Patches was saying about um, the mundanity of of production life of, of being on set. That is, it's not unlike poker. It's like hours of boredom and then moments of sheer terror. You see when they set off these incredibly complex pyrotechnics. Uh, I mean, I think that there, as spectacle is, I mean, this whole movie, it's $200 million to engineer spectacle in your seat at a movie theater. But I think a spectacle and the power thereof wanes in the contemporary era of movie going, and there are all sorts of stunts and gimmicks to find it. Right. I think it's really interesting to see these spectacles sort of perforate the the real world and and how that is as immersive a draw. That's true. I'll, I'll play devil's advocate ever. to my own comments because like seeing Detroit basically become a backlot for Hollywood, I found really interesting. Like the stuff they're pulling off in Detroit on the streets is insane. It's pretending to be China. It's bizarre. right, and part part of it is because Detroit is so in like such a depression right now and like it's a ghost town if you go and it can be turned into a backlot maybe that's what detroit really needs not to get too political Parts of but detroit can be turned into a backlot I, I i reject anyone calling detroit a well, ghost it's just town. it's There's so funny compared to new york we can't actually film action scenes here in new york city i don't know if people know no. that but like after the Unless source like i am legend after the sorcerer's apprentice no it's after i am legend sorcerer's apprentice screwed up action scenes in new york because this stunt car that big chase scene in sorcerer's apprentice drove through a borrow in Times Square and that was it it's over they destroyed property oh, no. and we'll, they'll never shoot a car chase in the city again. and for what and, and for, for a what? Nick Cage Disney movie <laughs> about magic all right well it's Transformers the pre-make it's by Kevin yeah, Beely, you and there'll be a link uh, on our website go check it out 25 minutes well spent and now we don't even I don't uh, even know if we have a Sabaro anymore <laughs> Again, what they happened? took out our Nicholas only Cage rot. <laughs> you assholes. <laughs> 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 
so for our mini segment tonight, I'm going to be talking about my recent trip to the Seattle International Film Festival. Uh, we're just going to monologue, I guess, a little bit, unless you guys have questions. Uh, <laughs> essentially, um, no, it's uh, it, you know, it was an eye-opening experience in some ways. I was invited out there to do a panel on the future of film criticism, which was not nearly as ominous or. Uh, Sort of. <laughs> did you pimp us out? I, I did. I think a number of times. I think oh, I pimped out everything that I could. Oh, wait a minute! You paused. You hesitated. Uh, well, I demand I, the audio I to be from honest, that panel. Yeah, uh, it, it was not nearly. The panel was not so definitive, but it was a really great talk. Uh, Eric Cohn of IndieWire invited me out there, and we joined. Uh, it was joined by Ann Thompson and Mr. Kevin B. Lee, who we just talked about in our previous segment. Uh, what nepotism? And, right, nepotism. And Kathy Fennessy who was a local critic there, um, and. Yeah, and so, you know, I, I, it was a really interesting film festival to be at, in part because uh, there were, I learned a number of different things, and this is going to sound like shilling for the festival, but I think it's valuable information, especially for people um, who are looking for a festival like this to attend, uh, Well, which is that Seattle, first of all, is an amazing film town, which I would not have guessed because I am horribly egocentric and biased towards things happening in New York, and if you're not here, then what the fuck is the point? Uh, but Seattle has an amazing repertory scene, I've learned, and it's growing every year, and it builds out of the film festival, which is the largest film festival in America. I think in a few years ago, they had, I just saw some number. It was in 2006, they had 160,000 attendees. And I think now they have more. And it's, it's like uh, Toronto sized. I mean, they have 300 movies. They're not obviously at the caliber of Toronto, but they are a lot of, uh, the premieres are probably hit and miss, but you have a lot of really strong movies from Berlin and Sundance and, the previous year's Toronto, etc. Um, I saw exactly one movie because I was working while I was there, and it was The Better Angels from Sundance, which I did not care for, but that's neither here nor there. Yes, I, I saw agree it in a beautiful, with you. <laughs> I saw it in a beautiful cinema uh, that was very well attended by a very curious crowd, and that was uh, just as exciting. And they have the Cinerama, and they have like, you know, it was a really, it's a really exciting place, and they really seem to care, and I think that uh, you know, as long as they stop inviting schmucks like me, they're going to uh, grow in their esteem and become sort of a major destination in did the you, United States. What was that? Did you finally go get good coffee? Uh, I did. I did eventually. After the Starbucks in Seattle are like palaces. I mean, they serve the same overpriced junk. Even the first Starbucks, which I wandered into five minutes after getting there, because my hotel was right downtown. But um, they, the Starbucks are, are just gorgeous and all the employees are on point and handing out free samples and with a smile on their face because they're all getting paid $15 an hour. So uh, everybody is very happy. Uh, And the volunteer, I mean, we're not getting paid for the festival. This is completely unrelated. The volunteers who I met were as great as, if not greater than volunteers I've seen at any other film festival. I mean, the people come out of the world, they're such film lovers who are so eager to sort of be a part of it and they're all wonderful people and uh, I had a really really weird experience at the filmmaker party after the screening of uh, of They Came Together the new David Wayne film which I did not see but I went to the party and <laughs> apparently <laughs> I was wearing something very similar to what David Wayne had been wearing at the Q&A after the movie and some drunken gentlemen <laughs> a small a small minion of drunken gentlemen uh, my favorite of whom was was very very Cuban uh, aggressively and then eventually almost hostilely cornered me uh, believing me to be David Wayne who is 15 years older than I am and uh, balding as opposed to me who is got more hair than he knows what to do with and that is not necessarily a positive and they were accosting me about how great I was to make this movie and how much they loved it and I was telling them that I did not make the movie and they were saying no you're being modest I feel like this is a like, name drop to, it's not exactly a name to, drop but it's almost a name it's, drop I did not meet David Wayne so <laughs> it's just myself it's, I'm name dropping myself and, you have a good story to tell him if you ever and, do Peter. no it, and it got really heated and there were like a bunch of them around me all like talking my ear off what this guy invited me to go to Cuba and stay with his mother and make a movie about that and then when I was like <laughs> eyeing the room trying to find a way out of this conversation one of them accused me of like being too big for them and being like all hollywood and i was like i'm not david wade and they were they were thinking the logic seemed to be that i was uh 
using that as an excuse to get out of this conversation, which of course I was, but they thought that it was a lie. And eventually I left the party because I was so uncomfortable. It was a very uncomfortable glimpse into what any social event, or certainly any like industry related party must be like for even someone moderately famous and what a fucking nightmare that must be. Uh, but in conclusion, I am not David Wayne. The people of Seattle are lovely otherwise. The people of Seattle are otherwise lovely. It's a really great film festival. And if you're uh, able to do it, it's a beautiful city that unfortunately I didn't get to see much of. But if you're able to do it next year and you're looking for sort of an all-encompassing film festival experience, uh, they had a really, really deep, rich lineup of movies. uh, And I would recommend checking it out. Did you do the Space Needle? I saw the Space Needle from below. That doesn't count. The awards breakfast was in the Space Needle and I was asleep. three this week we oh my god <laughs> oh yeah no oh, it's my week we don't fuck around on david's week we we go through this on, on, se- on segment three this week we were talking about season four of game of thrones in parentheses no spoilers for so uh we'll be talking about anything that has been televised up until the and through the season finale of season four is fair game but nothing that has not been included on the television shore, and most certainly nothing that has been omitted, <laughs> allegedly. That is Which in seems the books to be a huge as, talking point after this finale. That no one in the right mind should give two sweaty fucks about, because, like, get out of your heads, people. This is not the books. This is, this is a completely independent saga that is you're, you're talking uh, to at least the books a fourth, every a fourth of the audience is listening to Dave's podcast, which is about that exact topic. So we tread lightly. Well, <laughs> yeah, I hear, way to just be like, I hear that we're going to talk broadly about Game of Thrones. Well, this but is a mostly... very different experience. I hear nothing but wonderful things about Storm Spoilers, a show that I will literally never be listening to. But I encourage you to if you've read the books and that's your thing. Um, but so, yeah. Where to begin? Game of Game of Thrones season four. I will I will begin by saying that I thought that this was uh, overall, despite I think some some quirks here and there, the strongest season of the show so far. Uh, and I it, it definitely I've heard rumblings that the source material uh, slips a little bit in in future books, which we will not be discussing. But I. Uh, I can I get that sense. You sometimes get that sense when you're watching a show that even in the middle of the moment, that, that, that this is sort of its peak, that this is when everything was really gelling and, and all the various artistic forces uh, were conspiring to make this, uh, this solid a run. But isn't that what's exciting that, about the adaptation process, that despite the material maybe not being as good in the future? It is. That, I, uh, this can I have I, – well, I think that, uh, that Weiss and, and Benioff have earned – uh, an inordinate amount of faith in what they're going to be able to do. And it's heartening, of course, that they've been talking to George R. R. Martin, who's been actively involved creatively uh, in the TV show, and that they will maybe – I think this is one of the many reasons that – I only read the first book, I must admit, but from my experience that uh, and from Common Sense, why the shows are just much better than the books because they have the benefit of George R. R. Martin's failures where they can see where he went wrong. They have years of criticism at their disposal, which I'm sure if George R. R. Martin isn't interested in reading, although I bet he probably is, the showrunners are most certainly interested in reading, and can maybe uh, do some course correction. But I thought this was a phenomenal episode, uh, a phenomenal season of the show. I think that the... um, My main main criticism, and I'll turn it over after saying this, is just that the nature of the show is such that every scene arrives with such a clarity of purpose and such a uh, sort of tunnel vision focus because what you're happening is you're hopping between all these different narratives that every scene has to accomplish exactly one thing and if the scene is you know particularly effective it'll it'll lay the tracks for um, some other dramatic developments and some small character detail but you go to a scene the scene get I mean this is like screenwriting 101 I mean they raise a question or they answer one and and, and you move on and I think it is to very opposite of that is watching a show like Mad Men which is much more opaque by design and often 
finesse a lot of small developments and scenes that don't show their cards quite so quickly or don't arrive with such transparent and an explicit a purpose and so it can be frustrating over the years to see just one scene after a next in Mad Men and in, in Game of Thrones rather where uh, you're like okay they're they're knocking this off and then this off and then this off and even as someone who hasn't read the books it's just like okay this development and this development and then it's always sort of magical when they cohere as they did last night and some of the storylines uh, collided but I, it was also why I found the Watchers at the Wall episode so uh, refreshing and enjoyable because it hunkered down in a single location and really um, let years of investment in this sort of spotty build up to this point uh, play out in a more organic Except the way. Wall and-, and the people at the wall are probably the least interesting for me. Like I, I, I get what you're saying there, but I don't get the build up. I don't feel the build up because I've never really felt investment in those guys and their, you know, going past the wall and going on adventure and then coming back. Like I, it's always been a little murky for me. I would have said they were the least interesting until we got to Jojen and Bran and all those people uh, going to Three-Eyed Raven. They are no, the I actually – I'm more into Bran this season. Of course you like Bran. Well, you I know. The yeah, Cyclops I'm gonna, I'm gonna like second. <laughs> I'm going to second Katie's just completely just condescending you would. I think that that <laughs> sums it up. But I, I do think that um, – I do know and Dave – uh, Dave, do you read the books or do you just not care about spoilers so you do the show with Joanna? I just don't care about spoilers. Okay. So, uh, you know, I I believe, and I'm sure someone out there could correct us if I'm wrong, that uh, Jojen Reed, who dies in last night's episode, uh, has not died on the book in the book. I heard that. Yes. And so the uh, I, I love that because you know, this is the panic in book readers who this is like their only glimmer of power on earth is to like tantalize the people who aren't reading it with these little nuggets wow, on Twitter. Wow, way to condescend Oh, it was readers. so, it was, I mean, these people are worse than, they're like the Nazis of nope, our time. No, nope. David, what? they are I all like, listening I to like, this show. I like you, how you've like hobbled my ability to argue against you, but well, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try. Well, I, no, I'm just gonna say that the the, you know, there were like people who were like, oh, like in advance of the show last night, and of course, this is a small vocal minority, and no, you know, the the vast majority of the people who read the books have been exceedingly respectful. It's amazing how many plot developments, as someone who is on Twitter as you know incessantly as I am, has not been spoiled of. It's just you know, it only takes one person, unfortunately. But there were a number of people yesterday on my Twitter feed, hours before the show, who were saying, uh, "Oh, it's so great that they're airing tonight's episode on Father's Day," and it's like, "Go fuck yourself!" Like, what? What do you? It's like what, saying, "Like what?" during a sports event. It's like, what do you hope to get out of that? At all, at, there's no upside and only downside. Dave, so, Dave what were you just, gonna say? I was going to say that, first of all, how you deal with your fandom of a story is sort of like your own thing. And I think that there's a lot of people that see changes in the books as some sort of robbing of something that they loved. Uh, But I think more importantly, and the fourth season of Game of Thrones more so than other seasons... Um, when the show omits something or changes something that hasn't been resolved yet, book readers take that as a sign that therefore in the overall plot, since the showrunners know how it ends, that those things aren't important. So that's a little bit of where that sort of sudden emotional reaction comes from the when something's changing. kind of know how Yeah, I mean, it is, it's still satisfying no, they, for me. It's like a little bit of revenge. But I think it is, obviously, you raise a, a really interesting dilemma for book readers when they come across Jojen Reed's name in the next book. Um, are they like, like, who cares? Kill him already. Is George R. R. Martin now pressured to kill him in chapter one of I don't think so the next all. book? And I hope not. I think that, I think that uh, it would be so great if Jojen Reed had some Dramatic. Yeah, Jojo becomes the king scene. in the end of the right, end right. Of the series. that only happens in the book. <laughs> he takes over the yes. Iron and <laughs> it's it's just you know a broad announcement to the fan bases that they're telling independent stories that happen to share uh, you know a common core. So, um, so yeah, I want to yeah. I want to go back. Sorry, I want to go back to something else, which is that I think that also other book readers have been using it as a way to explore sort of how this television show becomes a television show. I think uh, Todd Vanderwoof has a good think piece over on AV Club where he talks about because all of the characters are so spread out, but this book, they have to adapt the book, and this book has so many climaxes at the end of it, basically from the Red Wedding through what happened this week, 
um, that you only get one scene with Bran, like, for three episodes. Therefore, that ep- that scene has to be very direct and very efficient in its usage of the characters. The one so in which getting... he meets the guy who is the Three-Eyed Raven? Well, in this one, or this entire season with Bran, like, he would sort of dart in and out, but they really tried to make him interesting by sort of end- having him at Caster's Keep for Whatever a while. And, you know, That's what I was trying to think of the other <laughs> well, she went away. She wandered off in yeah. the end of last season. Anyway, I think yeah. Todd Vanderwoof is not the problem. The problem, I well, think, are people who just need their... And this I is, was this trying is, to get us yeah, off, let's, let's off go of the problem. This, no, I, I'm, I, I'm, I was, I'm more interested... If you let me finish that sentence, I was pushing us... I was going to go back into the season just to talk about the topics. Well, that, that's I what I want to know, say. because you, you mentioned that you think this is the most successful season of all of them. And I, I don't know if I feel that way. Uh, I have this weird feeling after last night's finale, or two nights ago... Um, feeling like most of the season I was disappointed that I wanted to spend more time with these different characters. And like you mentioned that you have to it's kind of flash in the pan. Each character gets a moment throughout these episodes scattered across and who knows will pop up for like five minutes. Um, and yet I was deeply satisfied by the finale and maybe I can't pick a favorite season because none of them really feel like seasons. It's kind of like this right. ever this one is ever going. Yeah, like. it's always going and what's annoying is that it stops for a year or something like that. And um yeah, when they converged last night, you know, I'm a big fan of the Hound and Arya and all yeah. season I'm like I want more Arya and I want more the Hound and yet I still the payoff was great. And I don't know why it functions that way. If the if the scene are just so well constructed and um, the amount of information they put in the, the just the dramatic hooks of each scene we don't need that much of them and it's still really successful the scaffolding of the seasons I, I I would disagree that it feels like sort of a mess of scenes and you just arbitrarily have to wait 10 months to see the next batch of them. I, I do feel like the scaffolding of the seasons is rather ingeniously devised. I mean, of course, they have the breaks provided by the books, although those same problems could be endemic there. But um, I do feel as if they the stories are just self-contained enough, uh, often emotionally, if not geographically. Uh, but I felt like this was the season where a lot of the... Um, thing the emotions that we've been told of characters years of being told that that uh, you know Tywin hates Tyrion and and that there's this spite between Tyrion and and Cersei and years of being told about all these various family dynamics with the snows and what's beyond the wall finally became actionable and real and sort of sublimated into an emotional level and I think that was really apparent in last night's episode of course and also uh, really in the whole plot line of, of Tyrion being arrested and I, I think that that was some of the strongest stuff that we've seen on the show that is as disparate as it can get uh, cutting between all these various plot strands that that was as strong an anchor as the show has ever had. But the arcs uh, feel particularly... more diluted than they do. I, I you know, leading up to what is it, Blackwater, the big battle? Um, yeah. The one this no, season? No, no, no. No, that was uh, season two. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Season two. Yeah. I just felt like there was such momentum leading into that, and it was well, really crescendoing that, and then. then the finale was this kind of interesting grace note. We're in so many different places across Westeros that um, I'm kind of getting whiplash. And Well, I really yeah. enjoy the feeling of uh, you know it being a sort of this big map and all of these various uh, you know pieces being shifted around and get understanding the scale of what's happening here and how the stakes are established and then upended. I think those are some of the most satisfying moments of the show where viewer and character alike realize the uh, importance or lack thereof of what they are fighting for, what sliver of land they're hoping to conquer, or what minor victory they're hoping to achieve. Um, but I think that what you understand sort of the pathos of these movements so well for the events of the season, uh, particularly with, uh, I mean, I think that's the magical moment of, of the entire series so far, and I really don't think I'm alone on this, I don't, it's not especially novel insight, is when Oberon is in Tyrion's cell and uh, you know, tells him that he's going to be his champion. I mean, I think that moment expresses so much about how in this increasingly high fantasy world um the very human stakes that are underpinning everything what people want finally became like it it just felt like that moment crystallized so many different relationships and and how see oberon never did much for me this season because he was new and dispensed so quickly i'm much more interested in like 
Sansa or Daenerys and like they felt like the two characters that learned something this season. I didn't feel like there was that much progress made and I don't mean in terms of plot because obviously you think Arya made progress? I mean, I don't really know, did she? I mean, I felt like Arya hasn't changed that much. She's had some profound conversations with the Hound and her final beat with him watching him bleed out. Uh I mean, she's definitely on on a, her own path and she's kind of hardened, but I I, I don't see her as like I don't know what her goal is right now, or I don't know what she's chasing. And I feel like Sansa is the most interesting to me in terms of like what she might be after in the future. And we didn't even get a taste of her in the finale, which was strange. No. A taste of Sansa. That sounds yes. Although what the Hound said about her might uh, count. I think that this season, for me, was a much more uh, conversation with the audience about how they ended last season with the Red Wedding, and this season they're going to put the guy you basically root for in a cell for most of it, and basically try to force you to latch on to Jon Snow, who... You know, has to defend somewhere we traditionally thought of the safest place. And then later the Hound says in the finale, you know, we're safe anymore. Bitch. And that's that's the Westeros. This is the conclusion of the stuff that started at the beginning of the first season. What I think I've... we saw with that. With a, with a plot callback to the poisoning of John Aaron at the very beginning of the series. And I think we're sort of, I, I mean, without any sort of book knowledge, I think this feels like a middle point, and that's why I think the finale works so well, is because it is, all these characters are set up to make a really large turn. Either they found something that they're looking for, or they stopped looking for something in the place that they were looking for it, and are now going to shoot off in these new directions. Uh, That's why this was the most successful finale for me. Well, what I liked about the season as a whole, speaking of the sort of overarching ideas, is that it was the the season, obviously morality and gray shades thereof have been uh, omnipresent in Game of Thrones, but I thought that this was uh, it's not an accident that this was the season that triggered a lightning storm of think pieces about um, moral gray areas because and in action-related careers as well. Uh, because I think that this was the season where we learned the value of uh, moral codes in the show and, and how flexible they could be or should be or um, context-specific. Um, I think that there were a number of really fascinating developments in that regard. And that's what these characters are learning. I think that when you look at Sansa's development, you're watching... You know, she's involved in, uh, however peripherally, in a murder of someone she hated but is still sort of upset about, then watches a murder of an innocent person immediately thereafter, and then uh, plays even more of a role in the murder of her aunt. And I think as the final scene that we see here in the season, where she is essentially saving, um, what's his face, the Patty Littlefinger, Littlefinger from, uh, from that little impromptu panel there she is coming to grips with a moral compass and actually the last scene we see of her you know, that, is her in her black gown having her maleficent moment oh sure but uh, you know that she that and that's really what she's been developing over the course of the season and i think that that is um something that we've seen through a number of people i mean i think it is um you know, you, with a character like Arya, you think it is very cleanly going in one way where she's having this relationship with the Hound and it's becoming this sort of a parental thing. And then the final moments of that when uh, he's begging her to kill him and, you know, the, where, you know, don't forget what the heart is, whatever he says, is um, it sort of throws that on its ear. And you're watching all these characters in a way that is uh, very, I think, natural to any sort of adolescence and pubescent development sort of figuring out who they are by virtue of how they're going to apply their own moral scales how it's shaped by the world around them and i think that's all fascinating and then that's contrasted with the very uh, black and white justice system we see practiced by the adults in king's landing with uh, the trial by combat katie am i ruining everything by uh, not jumping in right after david <laughs> yes Wait, where, where do you want me to wrap up my feelings about Game of Thrones in general? No, we just uh, want to hear what your what your thoughts are to all these men arguing about Game of Thrones. Well, as a mansplaining to you, I feel strongly. I mean, no, I mean, I I like the finale. I thought it was. I thought it ended on a slightly weird note, and this is possibly because I had various book readers whispering in my ear about like giant things to expect that I won't talk about. I promise, but 
it did feel like like Arya sailing off to Bravos, and maybe this is partly because I don't totally remember what she's supposed to do in Bravos. I don't know if this is something that I. What is she trying to, to find? She's trying to find uh, man with crazy the face, more ghoulish guy who you know was like. Is if, she trying to find that guy? Really? Well, he says to her. I mean, I think that. Yeah, like if you ever need me, like save Alarm. She's she's in search not, of a greater yeah. destiny. It's unclear sure, exactly it's, yeah, where like, she's going right now. I get metaphorically what she's trying to do, but the whole idea of like Arya winding up in Bravos is not totally what I expected. She, I mean, this isn't a book spoiler again because they talked about it in season two. But that scene where the last scene she sees him. He offers to go take her to Bravos and train her as a faceless man. Assassin. Yeah, she's going to become the Scarlet Pimpernel of you, right. Westeros. She's like, if you ever change your, if you ever change your mind, use this coin. And so she's off to even darker Arya land, presumably. Yeah, and she's I, looking to get stronger and become more of a killing machine. Sure. What I struggle with going forward is like I care about Arya, I care about Brienne and kind of their journeys, but definitely what was most interesting to me on the show was all the stuff in King's Landing and the political intrigue and all these people hating each other and kind of walking around in rooms and I guess I like it as a political drama and I worry about the show becoming more about Jon Snow and Daenerys and people who are kind of fighting battles against supernatural forces and, you know, giant creatures taking over the wall and Bran learning his I don't destiny. think it's become, I, going to become more fantasy-like Dungeons and Dragons fantasy. I don't need to yeah. have read the it's books. It's called to The tell Song of that, Ice and Fire. That, that, it's going to be. That is definitely going to happen. Well, I, well, yeah, I, think and we I, need I worry like that I won't care much. Right? Like, I can't see this, this series getting more spread out in the next Ooh, se- season. For, I feel like it's only. Like, what are the Lannisters possibly where, going to be doing? Well, I can't. I which can't stories speak to are going to converge? What do you see converging? But there are going to be so many new characters you don't even. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, we're I, in the two towers period of this fantasy epic where everybody oh. is splitting, splitting up, and having their own. Little I'm, I'm the most piece. curious about the Lannisters because of everything that's happened to them and people we've lost and people on the run and how kind of uh, how Jamie and all the kerfuffle around around Jamie and oh my god, what's her name? Uh, Cersei. Cersei. Like what? How we've left that hanging and what they're possibly going to do? I guess they're going to. Try and nurture the new king, and King's Landing will be the same as always. Now, I'm pretty sure Jamie and Cersei are going to be on the rocks after she finds out Tyrion is gone. Like I think. No, wait. Here's something I didn't, I couldn't other. realize about the the finale was was Jamie leading Tyrion to his death? No, no, he was. No, I, it looked it looked like. Or it just seemed like, like a bad Tyrion plan. was so happy to see him. What are you talking? He's like said Varys is waiting. That's for true. You. Varys was there. I should yeah. I should have and realized. Varys, it just seemed Varys like a fishy so plan. And then because Tyrion ran off to go kill everybody. Oh, how about that Tyrion moment? Tyrion. Oh my god! It's so I mean the way I so I thought uh, when Shay is. Uh, testifying against him that there was, some, there was something going to happen where Shay was like, oh, you know, I didn't mean it, whatever. But that, I, I love that it's another slap on the wrist for doubting the convictions of, of how the show is presenting its world, uh, where you know, I think, I was reading an interview with Sybil Kakele, or, you know, I butchered her Turkish name, but um, how she does believe that Shay genuinely loved Tyrion, but the way of the world is in the, you know, he he didn't betray her, but you know, with his warming up to Sansa and putting her in more, di- more and more difficult and demanding circumstances, I think um, you know she had to, at a certain point, fend for herself and realize that she, you know, needs to make a go of it on her own. And and um, you know, of course, the fact that she calls Tywin the same thing she called Tyrion, uh, which is really what sets him off into yeah, a rage. Is, uh, yeah, it hurts. But I think that that again, this goes back to sort of the the non-binary morality it's 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 you know i think that she you know it's it's a difficult situation for period i do do like how the show doesn't you know once a character does something awful they're not sent all the way to one end of the spectrum you know after this jamie cersei encounter that spawned a thousand uh think pieces jamie can still be a kind of nice guy that we feel for and care about a little bit later in this season or i'm trying to think about Tyrion after murdering shay i mean that uh, we we feel bad for him because she's caught in bed and uh she uh, does she attack him with a dagger even or like come after yeah she's trying yeah, to she's kill definitely trying to kill sure. him so there's a little self-defense there but even like the way he's choking her and this is great performance like who 
mur- there's there's performance in these murders and in then, Game of uh, Thrones, and the the look on his face is devastated. But the man killed Shay, and that is not and right. Then, that is the way that he says that he's sorry is so great. It, 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 you can feel like it's insincere. He doesn't feel that sorry. No, I disagree completely. I think he's he's just incredibly. I mean, he's devastated. I think that but he's, he's also sure, in the wrong. Like, we should we should not take that. Yes, lightly. do not kill people. And then yet, no, I, I, I read a comment. I, I read a say, comment on. I what? think to say conclusively that he's in the wrong is to miss the point of everything that we've been talking about. What the show has been doing. I no, think but what I'm saying is he can be in the wrong, and I can still feel sympathy for him. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. The actions, I, the actions I, I, are indefensible, but the characters him. are not. Well, I, Complexity. I agree with what you're saying. I'm not sure I agree with the particular choice of words. I, I think indefensible is not how I would describe it. But, but like I, personally, I agree for with me, as saying. my morality versus what I understand on the show is different. Like, right. what's interesting about Game of Thrones is it makes pe- it makes me root for people who do things that I deem personally indefensible, right, exactly. like raping your sister. Right, and it <laughs> makes you. But it makes you also not to encourage you or anyone else to rape your sister. But it, it I think, <laughs> the show does. A really interesting job of encouraging you to step out of yourself and uh, move away from your egocentricity and understand people within their own context. But that's that's what we're and talking about. We're I talking about the layers. Like right, the action right. is separated from the character that we appreciate, and this happens to Jamie. This happens to every single character. This is what the Hound is all about, right? The Hound is an awful person, and he's confessing all these evil things that he's done in his time. We still like him. A little bit, and we still it happens to it happens to most yeah, characters. Exactly. The closer you are to King's Landing, the more layers you have on this show. <laughs> and this is part you know. of where I've gotten a little exhausted with Daenerys, who, as someone whose layers are emerging, and you see her kind of being like, "I'm going to free all of the slaves," and then you see it backfiring on her for maybe four episodes in a row. And at this point, I feel like we've seen oh, everything's man. blowing up yeah. well, so many times. I'm a little worn out. I'm never going right, as- to. Oh, go go on, Dave. And I was going to try wrap it up. So oh, you say I your was thing. just say, you know, it's it's I. I don't want to necessarily go to bat for the way that Daenerys' story has been handled, but I do think that uh, there's this perverse thing where the more they bog her down, the more interesting it's starting to become. I was getting tired of it when it was just a forward march to King's Landing, right. you know, conquer which was this city just way out of the distance. Yeah. Right, right. But now that it's uh, – she's realizing – the complexities of being a conqueror. Watching an old man um, put his burnt baby in front of her. Right. It's- I think that the moment where she locks her dragons away and sort of realizes the extent to which she can't tame them anymore, so much as they may have a mutual sort of animalistic you know, maternal love, uh, is is a really compelling one in her storyline. And, and um you know, if if bogging her down and letting sort of the torpor of their journey overtake her is what it's going to take for the her storyline to really come into its own, then that's fine by me. Watching that scene where she locked up her dragons, I was like, "Oh, good, Amelia Clark can act against nothing, so she'll balance out the horribleness of Jai Courtney in the new Terminator movie." <laughs> that's a way to get us out of Game of Thrones. Talk about the new Terminator. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday. Patches and David are going to be talking about movies that I haven't seen. So <laughs> whatever you guys wow. want to talk about is what that podcast will be about. Great I plug, love that Katie. investment. Yeah. I love that investment. I love movies, especially when I do not see them. Um, but I love Game of Thrones. Anyway, we'll be back with podcasts on Friday. In the meantime, tell people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet at many places and I put them on my website mattpatches.com and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches and uh, if you want a link to Transformers the pre-make along with all sorts of other notes and music breaks and uh, comments and tweet buttons everything is on our website our Lost Project, lost project our which is 25th episode spectacular yeah listen to the Lost Project while you gear up for the leftovers oh, yeah. the next Damon Lindelof project <laughs> hopefully the leftovers will be slightly more successful uh, although I love Lost, Lost, Lost is great. Come on, we should Damon Lindelof. Be, he has serious mental issues post Lost. I feel bad for that guy. Anyway, fightinginthewarroom.com. <laughs> uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the editor at large of Little White Lies magazine and website. I also write for the Resolve AV Club. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner. And you can find all of us together on Facebook. Facebook, Fighting in the War Room. Talk to us. Just name repetition. 
You go to Facebook Fighting in the War Room, and that's where I want you to leave your comments about how you hate David because he told you you were stupid for liking books. Mm. And uh, I don't want to personally deal with that because I don't. Verbatim what I said. Do not endorse those comments. You are a moron. Come yell at David on Facebook. I'm actually I'll reading sure. a great book right now. Quick shout out. Mark Harris's Five Came Back. I oh my Patches. God, it's so good. Patches, we have to talk you talk about, about it. this on the show at some point? No. No, maybe I we, did. I think no. we mentioned I, I it a few times. But. It's excellent. I want a fictionalized version of it or like a, a narrative version of it with the cast of Monuments Men directed by Martin Scorsese. Oh my god. It would be so good. This is going to be a very loosely structured podcast. I can feel it right now at the end. Uh, I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name DA70. That's also my Twitter handle. I write about superhero movie news and Star Wars at latino-review.com. You should give us a call at 914-410-6450 and tell us your song of the summer. Do it quickly. I think I'm going to collect your answers soon uh, because I really want some music that makes me feel like it's you, summer. You should start covering, like, I'm Czech not film. It. Along with Marvel movies, Star Wars, and, like, Czech drama. I'm, I'm building to something, <laughs> Patches, but we'll... You'll He's have to wait till my book comes out Marvel in 2017. <laughs> yeah, the Dave-verse. Yeah. You, guys, you guys laugh like that's not going to happen no, in 10 years. Oh, it definitely but, is. You're going to have been the uh, oh Vanguard. Yeah. Um, I'm Katie Rich. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Katie Rich and at Vanity Fairs Hollywood, where I write about things. You can also find the entire podcast, all of us, on Twitter at FITWR. It's also a place where you could answer this week's lightning round question, which is In honor of Jersey Boys, a that real comes movie. out this week. It's a real movie. What, what musical would you like to see as a movie? Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. And if he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light. If he stays, then I'll wait for him in the morning. I'm a thousand pieces of light.